TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. This is Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. And you're listening to The Permanent Record, a weekly conversation about the justice system, how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. For our first episode, we spoke with Memphis Police Department Director Michael Rawlings. Director Rawlings is a Memphis native and a longtime member of the force. He was promoted to this position last summer. You'll probably recall his successful and well-received handling of the protests that shut down the I-40 bridge. At the time of his promotion, Just City spoke out against the selection and hiring process that we felt was pretty opaque and didn't involve nearly enough public input. And this wasn't a criticism of him necessarily, but we felt the way his hiring was handled missed a very important opportunity for building trust and rapport with the community. Nevertheless, we appreciate Director Rowling speaking with us for this podcast, and even though we may not agree on everything related to criminal justice policy, he was unfailingly candid and forthcoming during our conversation. I spoke with him at his office in the Shelby County Criminal Justice Complex at 201 Poplar. All right. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Director Rawlings. Um, so you grew up in Memphis in Scudderfield. Uh, you're a proud Memphian. We've heard you talk about uh, that experience a lot. So uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and more specifically, tell us about any interactions you had with the police as a child with your family and, and how that has influenced uh, your your career. Yeah, great question. First, uh, it just didn't stop to Scudderfield. That's where my grandmother lived, uh, 1013 Tully. Uh, and so North Memphis, Whitehaven, uh, East Memphis, um, you know, also I remember spending a bunch of summers in the parks right across from Glenview Park. So I think I'm blessed that I got to see, you know, quite a bit from spending time with grandparents, uh, living in different parts of the city and, 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 and not just getting locked into one particular view of Memphis. So if, if I go back to, um, um, you know, growing up in, in North Memphis, uh, you know, very few times were there interactions with the police because I was a young child. I remember the police showing up uh, to some ne- next door neighbors uh, next to my grandmother's home. And uh, it appeared to be a domestic now that I'm a you know, veteran police officer, I know what I was looking at, but that was some bottle throwing, some glass breaking, police showed up. I uh, don't remember if anyone was arrested, but, you know, I was young enough to know that, you know, my, my aunt or my grandmother simply pushed the kids in the house and made sure that we were not involved. But, you know, from an early on, you know, as long as I can remember, there was only two things I ever wanted to be, a soldier and a police officer. That's it. There was nothing else. So I got to do both of those 30 and a half years in the military, 27 years now as a police officer. So my view of the police uh, was very different because we were wrapped around by a community. Sure. And it wasn't, you know, there was no dependence on law enforcement to raise, tutor, mentor, clothe, feed children. That was the parents, the churches. The community's responsibility. That's interesting. I've heard you tell that story before about uh, about that event, and and so I'm wondering if there are other events uh, like that, and if there was a time when you saw uh, policing in your community or grandmother's community, and you said, I-, "I would 
like to have seen that happen differently or that made me nervous or that I was afraid? Was there anything like that that has sort of, you know, influenced you as a, as a soldier and a police officer? Well, I can tell you another experience. Uh, on Jackson Street, I had a uh, little cowboy pistol and it was after the 4th of July and I was taking little small uh, firecrackers. Um, I don't know what they call them, but they were little mini firecrackers. And I was sticking them in the end of the pistol, lighting them, and pointing the pistol toward the street. And the police were called. I would imagine. And responded. And my uh, my cousin Laquita can really tell the story because they, they remember and, and remember me hiding uh, behind uh, the dress of my aunt, who I love dearly, who protected me from the police because, you know, a little kid doesn't can't put together what's really going on. The average person thought I was shooting at cars that were driving by. So think about this. Officers respond. Yes, there's a kid, but man, just through a sheer blessing, I may have been so naive that I could have done that to the police officers. And what would have happened if that actually occurred in real time, series of events that happened. So I don't remember having a negative experience with law enforcement, maybe because my parents made sure I knew the difference between right and wrong. I knew when I did wrong. And I think that my parents made sure that if you did wrong, you fess up to it. You were disciplined. So it wasn't something where, you know, the police were not made to be the enemy. They were, when I was in school, we were taught the police are your friends. If you get lost, if you're in trouble, you go to a police officer. Sure. Let's talk about those police officers. Um, one of the uh, the things that you and Mayor Strickland have been in- incredibly consistent about is is the call for a, a full complement of officers. And that number we've heard over and over has been about 2,400. And I think that number, you can correct me if I'm wrong, comes from a uh, the city council approving that complement at 2,400 and maybe 2010. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of put uh, a meaning to that number for us. Seven years ago is a long time. The city's gone through many changes. The police department has gone through a few changes. And what does that number uh, represent? Where does it come from? How can we defend it in 2017 gotcha. when it came about so long ago? Uh, first, 2400 is grossly under what we need. Uh, so in 2008, when I was training commander, when uh, council actually, you think we got to go back to 2006 because people approach me every day and say, director, you know, things are so bad, crime's at all-time high, and I say, no, it's not. In 2006, crime was at all-time high. Crime was 27% higher than it is today. That's where the 2,500 number came from. So Director Larry Godwin really looked at what the demands were for law enforcement, working with Rich Janikowski, started the Real-Time Crime Center, started using data-driven policing, and started looking at the staffing level for the police department. So... In 2011, we got up to 2,500 police officers. That's exactly what we need to do our job. But we constantly had discussions that we need 2,600 to provide the level of service that we need. So we need 2,500 police officers because the volume of calls, almost a million calls, officers are dispatched every year. 2.2 million calls came into the 911 call center last year. The, the large number or, or, or amount of geographical location that we have, you know, we're over 300 square miles. So we're, we're spread out and it takes people 
and it takes time to make sure we deliver the level of police services that people deserve. So that's a real number based off of call demand, crime, population, uh, and the geographical location that we have to protect. So speaking of uh, the real-time crime center and and as you mentioned, the drop in crime since 2006 that uh, you know most categories of crime, uh, especially the higher volume crimes, remain at, at all-time lows or near all-time lows in Memphis. So um, this 2,500 number that was established using real-time crime data and you know crime rates uh, then, uh, it would seem to me that the drop, the reduction in those uh, things would, would indicate we may need a smaller number. And, and where is the support for whatever that number is that, yeah, yeah. that, that the council was willing to approve in 2010? Yeah, great question. So part of the problem is that no one understands the numbers. So when we think about the real-time crime center, the real crime crime center just crunches numbers, data, helps us decide based on crime, where should we deploy police officers and when. Uh, when we talk about a reduction in crime, you know, first we have to say if the levels in 2006 were unacceptable, the levels are still too high, but we were on the right path and we had consistent reductions in property crime and violent crime. Today, we're below our 2006 staffing level at 1,943 police officers. So our staffing level has really taken a hit. We're at an unacceptable level. And we've seen crime go back in the wrong direction. In what places are we at an unacceptable level? What, well, what types of first crime? of all, if you think about, um, let's say, if uh, some, uh, a place that gets a lot of attention, let's say Forbes or places where there's ranking of the most dangerous city. OK, well, I, as a police director, want Memphis out of the top four, five you know, I want Memphis down below the top 20. So as a community, we're going to have to decide what we want our community to look like. What crime is acceptable? What's not acceptable? What types of crimes? Like which of the crimes are on the rise? Um, and, and how does uh, an enhanced or increased complement of police officers uh, affect that? Yeah. So uh, if we if we think about violent crime, you know, we've seen increases in violent crime since 2011, we attribute a lot of it to just not having uh, the adequate staff to respond to. And we track uh, part one crimes. And for Blue Crush, our data-driven policing to be effective, you have to have proper manpower to address and place them in areas where crime is occurring. We can't ignore that Memphis suffers from poverty, you know, poor education, poor health care, housing issues, uh, all the things that breed crime, Memphis is represented or overrepresented in these areas. So I think often we expect too much out of law enforcement and we ignore these issues. So a great example is looking at homicides. U of M came and did a study on our homicides. Uh, we asked them to come in. The three biggest factors that contribute to homicide from what they discovered is people being transient, high school dropout, and early exposure or some exposure to domestic violence. So for us to, you know, since we, it's very hard to move the needle with those, we know that we can properly staff the police department so we can respond to calls in a timely manner. 
we can address the large number of incidents that occur so we can investigate them. <clears throat> we can do proactive patrol. That's why those staffing levels and we can do what everyone asks us to do, and that's do more community policing. Right, right. And, and I want to talk about community policing in a second. But, but am I hearing you right then in saying that the, these provisions that, that we use to address um, particularly violent crime don't necessarily involve more police officers? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you need both. OK, but in the absence of of those other issues being addressed, the pressing thing is to get police officers up to staffing. Uh, I think it's a fallacy to assume that we're going to accomplish a, uh, and get our city to where we want to without law enforcement. New York's a great example. So New York, 37,000 police officers. So when I talk to a retired commissioner, uh, Kelly, or if I talk to the current uh, New York commissioner, say, how did y'all do this? said, Mike, <clears throat> we obviously have a lot of police officers. The difference in New York and Memphis is Memphis is spread out. New York is spread up. Mm-hmm. Well, I can put uh, the same number of officers in a condensed city, and they can handle more people being in that area versus spread out because we have travel time. So I think, and this is, this is from you know a lot of experience, deploying manpower, been a deputy chief since 2009, Knowing the demand for us on special events, the demand for us at, at, at our shopping areas, at our schools, uh, and, and the high volume of calls, those are the numbers of officers that we need. And I think that if we get to that proper staffing level, we really can make some great things happen in Memphis. I want to talk about something that I think probably um, doesn't help the staffing uh, situation that you find yourself in, and that is uh, the unlicensed driver problem in a place like Memphis, as you've mentioned, is you know high poverty levels. And what we have in Tennessee is a, a driver license uh, framework that makes it very difficult for people living in, in second, third generational poverty uh, to keep a driver's license. One ticket can start a snowball effect that results in thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. And uh, when someone is pulled over and that license is uh, suspended, whether knowingly or unknowingly, your officers have to deal with that. They have to write tickets and they do that tens of thousands of times a year, as you know. And um, the, the, the fix to that, I believe, is, is to uh, not punish poverty, number one. Obviously, that's, that's one guy's opinion. But I'm wondering if you support measures that would... Uh, would take that out of the criminal realm and take that out of your office, officer's responsibility as they patrol? Uh, and and if, if so, what are those things? Yeah. So I go back and look at where the things get started. Here's a, here's a great story. So before I joined the Army, I had a ticket that I didn't pay for. Okay? I earned a ticket because I was speeding. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a call from my mother and said, hey, the uh, sheriff's department or somebody's looking for you. And go, oh, my God, what happened? He said, well, you didn't pay a ticket, uh, and I don't know what all happened. It, it could have been a notice sent to the home, and, you know, that was my fault. So the first thing I think we have to do is make sure that when there's a violation, that people take care of that $35 ticket. And we talk about poverty, uh, I definitely we have to look at that. But the state also has 101 ways or reasons why you can use, lose your driver's license. Exactly. That exasperates the situation. So <clears throat> we talk about child support. Uh, we talk about not paying court fines, uh, not paying tickets. Uh, we talk about all these things that lead to that. So what, what I think we need to really invest time in because, you know, we, we can't ask the police officer to not do their job. 
because, you know, city ordinance, state law says this is the law, this is what you need to follow. But I think if we invest more in helping young men get their driver's license back, because I think I last checked the record, and I like to keep it in my phone, so when we have these conversations, I'm, I'm giving you real-time stuff. Uh, these are numbers that came down from the Department of Safety, and this was a, a few months ago. Uh, 107,000 individuals in Shelby County don't have a driver's right. license. Right. Okay. It's either canceled, revoked, suspended, and, and, and that means that when they come in contact with law enforcement, they're probably going to be arrested. That's right. And a significant number of those, we have some uh, numbers, too, as, as a result of, of Just City's involvement with a lawsuit against the state, because a lot of those suspensions have come solely because of failure to pay court costs, whether the original offense was driving or not. And so tens of thousands of those Shelby Countyans you just mentioned were suspended only because of a failure to pay. And so it, do you have a, a position or a role to play in helping fix that? If, you, oh, if you've got tens of thousands of fewer with, unlicensed drivers, what can you do? Without a doubt, because <clears throat> I'm going to be an advocate. I can't change state law. And often people approach me probably like they approach you and say, Director, you need to do something about this. And I said, well, first have a conversation with your state representatives and, and make sure you share with them that this is an issue. So we've met with uh, individuals from um, the the courts, court clerk's office, um, the the state clerk's offices. Talk about we will partner with you to put on programs to help help these young men. Mostly, we're talking about young men, and you know that I know what I'm talking about. Get their driver's license back, so they can then be able to drive and you know be gainfully employed. And help them change their circumstance. So I'm definitely an advocate for it. Uh, But, you know, I am confined by state law and city ordinance and MPD policy and procedure. And I always tell people that one thing we have to do is focus on if we need to change the law, let's change the law. If we need to 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 either have ask the judges to assign these young men community service or they can help clean up the blight in our community, or that they're volunteering time to 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 do construction or whatever to help pay for their fines. You know, let's do that. But let's make sure we change the rules and not just ask law enforcement to, to turn a blind eye to offenses. Right, right. Let's talk uh, for just a second about CLURB. It was reported this uh, very recently that uh, uh, there were some recommendations from CLURB uh, that that the police department was not going to follow. And, and so I think the CLURB conversation is, is, uh, is, is very relevant right now. So, you know, I don't want to talk necessarily about those four cases, but in, in terms of us, uh, of the people of this community's, uh, I guess, right may not be too strong of a word and, and, and desire to be involved in their police force, uh, to, to insist on accountability, to insist on some, some transparency. What is a good way uh, to do that, and and what can can you do as the police director, and and what can your police department do to build confidence uh, in this community that when when if an officer uh, does step over that line, that that there will be accountability. I, there's the question. <laughs> yeah. So first, if there's an allegation, okay. So uh, Memphis is a fourth largest deployment of Axon Flex body worn cameras in the nation. We've deployed over 1,400 body-worn cameras. So, you know, 
the public, the, the Memphians asked for accountability, and I want to, you know, applaud Director Armstrong, Mayor Warden, for going in that direction. <clears throat> now, it left me with a big task to make it happen, but we've made it happen. We've deployed, fully deployed the body-worn cameras so that there's an independent witness to these incidents. So let's talk about the CLERP. CLERP makes a introduction of the incident. They talk about their findings, kind of these are our findings, and they have recommendations for actions. My job is to review their recommendations, but also review the internal affairs file or the ISB file and look at the facts. Well, you know, these are the first set of four letters that have been returned. I spent a lot of time going through the facts and responding very specifically to why I made my decision. Just for clarification, these are the I letters that were re- in response to, so, to the clerk. So when people talk about transparency, you know, clerk's posts have a website to post the letters so people can read them. So people are only speculating. I get to look at the facts. So, you know, so, we're going to continue to look at the facts. Based on the facts, I've made recommendations. And uh, I think that, you know, when people, you know, CLERB is an outlet, you know, people come and they write me letters. They contact the mayor's office. They stop me on the street. And we look at these incidents. So my job is to make sure that, first, our Inspectional Services Bureau is staffed with competent people and that they do diligence in investigating the cases and they present the facts and then we look at the facts and bounce it against policy to see if there's a policy violation. So again, making sure we do thorough investigations, making sure that officers are held accountable because some people think that officers aren't held accountable. They're, they are held accountable. You know, officers receive discipline. They receive corrective training. They receive additional training. Uh, so we are probably one of the most uh, held accountable entities in the nation uh, and we'll continue to do those things. The other issue is educating the public on what the law is, what our policies and procedures are. That's why we spent a lot of time trying to get the public. I wanted 100,000 Memphians. Now, I think 3,600 actually took the survey to take the the response to resistance survey so that they can really have time to say, okay, this is what the law says. This is what a, a police officer can do so we have a better understanding of what the rules are because often we rely on TV, social media, uh, stories to, to, to explain to people what the rules are, and I think sometimes we need to spend time talking about the rules so you understand what an officer can do what officer cannot do. Sure, sure. That that makes some sense. But let's talk less about maybe these somewhat arcane and 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 hard to understand uh, processes that we put in place for accountability, and um, and and talk more about you know officers in the community before something happens and community policing specifically. You mentioned it earlier, and and it's something that we've been talking about as as communities and, and especially in urban areas for quite some time, um, and it's. Um, it's something that I've had some firsthand knowledge uh, with it with a ride along and, and was particularly uh, impressed uh, by the way it's been implemented in one particular community in this uh, uh, in this city. And uh, but I feel like we, we don't I feel like there's something missing from that conversation. So I guess my question is, what's missing from the conversation about community policing? Oh, my question would be, what do you think is missing? 
I mean, so so you're you're on the other side of the table. Well, you're I think doing that distrust right on, that we have <clears throat> is 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 a, is what's missing. We, well, need, we don't think, have trust. I think part of the problem is that the distrust is not based off a lot of facts. So when you get in the police car and you ride around, you see it from a different viewpoint. So um, you know because uh, I get to travel all around the community. I meet all different types of people. I try to be in everybody's. You know every. Not just, you know, a community that looks like me. I want to go to all different religions, different neighborhoods and and really get out there and meet people. And that's what so the police officers are serving in all these different communities. And I think often the police get a bad rap. I think the police get a bad rap because I think about something that the uh, former police chief in Dallas said shortly before he left office and definitely after uh, five of his officers were 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 murdered. And he talked about that, that. We mean society. We're asking the police to do way more than police ever supposed to be doing. You know, <clears throat> we're responding to, uh, you know, I think we, we answered 4,000 calls last year, uh, or maybe 14,000 calls that are related to, uh, individuals in crisis, some type of mental illness issue. We're doing loose dog calls. We're, 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 we're doing all these things that are really societal type issues that we're asking police to do. So one of the issues is a lot of places we need to work on community because neighbors are, are, are taking advantage of neighbors. Uh, there's way too much violent crime in these communities. Uh, impoverished communities are, are negatively impacted by so many things that are that make it very hard for those communities to thrive uh, and the police can't the police can't do it by yeah, themselves I think that's true with the entire criminal justice system and yeah. I think I think that's really interesting to hear you say that that uh, what we've done with the police department is uh, and correct me if I'm wrong what I hear you saying is we've asked them to, to treat and deal with and be quite frankly the the tip of the spear for a lot of society's problems and and so but back to the the question, I guess, how can uh, we as a community um, force a better question about community policing and police in our in our communities? Well, we can recognize that, you know, community policing is only one small piece of it. So uh, you asked me a question earlier about, you know, growing up uh, as a child. And I was never coached by a police officer. It was somebody's dad. OK, Um uh, I was never disciplined by a police officer other than the, the one time the cops came to get me, you know, when I was shooting a what somebody probably thought was a gun at, pass, at passing cars. But right, with firecrackers in, in the barrel, don't the, forget. The corrective <laughs> action was conducted by my father, right, right. Okay, who was the police in my house. Okay, And I know that we talk about a lot of families, you know, being born to single parent households. So we have to come up with a way to make sure that these young men have, you know, folks around them that are trying to help them thrive and become productive citizens. So I want to applaud, you know, I go around a lot and ask people, have you heard about the Tennessee promise? And most of the time I hear crickets. Have you heard about the Tennessee reconnect? Nobody raises their hand and granted it's making its way through the legislature, but the Tennessee promise has been here long enough for governor Haslam to right. go to a graduation. That's so right. we're talking two years after. We're not talking about a lot of stuff that matters. So if we get more kids staying in school, more kids graduating, more kids learning to read at grade level, 
clean up our neighborhoods and attack the blight lookouts for our neighbors mm-hmm. and really work on building community very easy for the police to come in then and be partners right and help because as a patrol officer you know and patrol officers are doing it every single day but it's hard to do community policing when you're responding from call to call to call that's why we need 2500 police officers <laughs> so we can reduce the call volume give officers time to do some foot patrol Give them time to go out and talk to people on the porch. Give them time to build relationships because we're asking officers to do everything. Uh, and it's just not, it's, it, it's, it's not even practical. And I don't lie to people and tell them that we're going to be able to save the world. We can if we work together. Well, Director Rowlings, those are uh, good words to end on, I think. And I thank you so much for your time today, for your honesty, for your, uh, your openness to come and talk with us. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. That was Memphis Police Director Michael Rawlings in conversation and on the permanent record. My thanks to Director Rawlings and his staff for arranging that interview. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a joint production of Just City and the OAM Network. Please learn more about our work at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Check out the OAM Network at oamnetwork.com. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.